millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and I'm joined, as always, by Kelly Weil of The Daily Beast. Kelly, how you doing? How's it going, Will? I heard you got uh, banned from Twitter and Instagram and maybe all meta properties <laughs> for uh, going on a crazy tweet spree. What was that? No, that would be... That would be Kanye West. Oh, I get you guys confused all the time. (laughs) Both visionaries, cross-platform visionaries. (laughs) Yeah, the I think the thing on a lot of people's minds this week is Kanye West's sort of reimagining as both a a, like a virulent anti-Semite, but also, and maybe you know, maybe this is contradictory, maybe it's not the public face of Fox News. It's just obviously he's been kind of inching for many years towards this kind of conservative thing, but it really has just gone off the handle over the past few weeks. And I think I want to dive into this, the sort of the the grappling that, that the conservative media, the Republican Party is doing here, where they're seeing a guy who, although certainly I would say not at the peak of his career, is still pretty popular, has some claim to like a non-political relevance, who seems to want to be a big Republican and kind of like a big talking head guy, but also is very volatile. Now, Kelly, walk us through how, how we got here over the past, I don't know, five or six days. Maybe taking a step back like five or six years, because you're right, Connie's always been sort of like dabbling in this Republican culture for a while. I mean, not always, right? He was the guy who during Katrina went on a public broadcast and said uh, George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. So he's always been a loser canon politically on either side of the spectrum. But for the past few years, he's really been dabbling in more uh, right-wing politics, or at least politics that uh, benefit Republicans. So if you remember, he had that uh, aborted uh, presidential run that, you know, would have only dam- damaged Democrats. So he's been, you know, dipping his toe in the water for a while. And he's uh, he really sort of let it all all loose the past week. Uh, he had a fashion show in Paris for his line, and he showed up in a White Lives Matter shirt. Candace Owens, the conservative commentator, was there. She was wearing a matching White Lives Matter shirt. It reminds me of that Onion headline, Marilyn Manson going door to door trying to shock people. But unfortunately, this isn't just like some shock tactic that he's doing in isolation, right? This is something that, this is a meme on the far right, has been for ages. Uh, this White Lives Matter 
matter trope. It's the name of a hate group. So it's not something that just like exists in a vacuum, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, also the, the 4chan campaign, It's Okay to Be White, where, where these things that, that are sort of put forward as like, oh, what? Is it not okay to be white? It's obviously being embraced by these uh, white supremacists. Um, yeah, so so this has been over a couple of days. So he does the White Lives Matter thing, and then he does this Tucker interview. Now, Kelly, have you had the pleasure of watching this? I have watched excerpts, and I can't sit down and watch the whole thing because I need to take like little cringe breaks. I just, I the, the full power of it, I'm not ready for yet. Well, this thing is so weird because the two parties in, in this interview, so Fox News, Tucker Carlson, and then Kanye on the other side, they have various interests at play here. And, and now, I think Tucker wants to make Kanye into this this kind of popular conservative figure, but also in this very kind of specific type of like the the wronged family court father. <laughs> because like I, I think what may not be coming through is like if you're not really like closely following celebrity news or this interview, is like how much of this is related to like Kanye and Kim Kardashian and their children and stuff. And so like and Jason Whitlock, who's this other kind of conservative sports commentator, after the interview, he made it, it sort of much more explicit what was going on. He says, you know, Kanye or excuse me, Kim Kardashian has eaten like Eve. She's eaten the forbidden fruit, in this case of feminism, and you know, stolen Kanye's family away from him. There's implication that somehow the Clinton family was involved in this divorce i mean it's very weird stuff so but but in the in this case the this interview which is heralded as like you know he's this kind of like world striding cultural figure then when he gets down to it i mean he's talking about it's like all right tucker yeah i i'm I'm so glad you're here today because i've got to talk about something jared kushner's brother owns too much of a stake in my wife's shapewear line (laughs) and you you have to imagine i mean I know crazy stuff goes down on Fox News, but, you know, I know some average Fox News viewers, and I just have to imagine these people watching this like, what? Why do I care about this? You know, it's not even about Jared Kushner. It's about Josh Kushner. This is a very actually Trumpy in turn, right? You know, he he's a big get for any conservative uh, host, but often when he gets on the air, he kind of goes off the rails, and he'll be talking about feuds from, you know, 1981. He's litigating obscure business interests. You know, he's he has some beef with someone, and again, yeah, a shapewear company that's actually pretty spot on well i mean just to you know we think of like the classic example of that would be um you know trump saying at a rally like well graydon carter was very unfair to me very unfair <laughs> with spy magazine the vanity fair party is not hot anymore and so that's a very like kind of trumpian move sort of scattering in these like celebrity entertainment media feuds there was a point where he was like anna wintour put a green light on me to take me down at a vogue meeting and stuff i mean it's just very strange and so then you kind of have this i guess for me about this interview because it's supposedly a very very long interview. Well, the thing that was interesting about it is there's kind of all these like elliptical turns back to talking about Christianity and politics and stuff. But so much of it is about these things like, why does Jared Kushner's brother own 10% of my wife's shapewear line when I only own 5% that you have to imagine that was a huge amount of the actual interview that then could only be cut down so much. That they're like, all right, we got to include this thing about like <laughs> the Kushners and like Carly Kloss. In this interview, there's a lot of like alluding to, I would say, familial or cultural or religious groups that Kanye Fields hold hold a lot of power in banking and the media. (laughs) But he doesn't quite come out and say it. And then a few days later, Kanye tweets, I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. For listeners who haven't read this tweet, Will's not saying DEFCON like the the military readiness thing. It's DEFCON. And it's entirely unclear to me if Kanye actually thinks it's DEFCON. But it's, you know, it has, it has a more threatening aura. Yeah, I mean, so so Kelly, what, what do you make of all this? Well, okay, so Kanye, even before this, there was over the weekend, I think he was, uh, he shared his DMs with another rapper where he was, you know, alluding to Jewish power, what have you. And so he's been sort of circling some anti-Semitic tropes for a while. It's challenging, right? 
right? Because it's hard to know how, you know, steeped in these conspiracy theories he actually is. But I mean, these are tropes that you'd see on 4chan, right? Um, And he's just spitting them back out on his social media. And now he's, you know, he's making Jewish people into this villain in his all his uh, perceived persecution. You know, he got banned from Instagram. He strikes out at Mark Zuckerberg, who's Jewish, that kind of thing. It's not so great, Will. Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at here sort of a, a blend of this like very online conservatism, um, I would say represented by someone like Candace Owens or like kind of 4chan types, as well as this sort of like he, he's getting a lot of like um, like black Israelite stuff. Um, yeah. you know, here in D.C., we have we have more than a few black Israelites uh, shouting at people and wearing kind of like medieval armor because then he's saying, you know, well, I'm Jewish because I'm black. I mean, it, there's a lot of like esoteric strands going in here. The difficulty with the idea of saying you're going to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, I think for Republicans, is that just a few days ago, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Kanye is like the face of our movement. The House Judiciary Republicans, now, keep in mind, this is a, a committee of the House that's ostensibly, you know, like, supposed to be monitoring the government. They tweet Kanye, Elon, Trump. So these are like the, the big three, right? So have they gotten over their skis? Have they tied themselves too much to Kanye? I mean, it strikes me that these are the same people who get like insanely mad when Ilhan Omar criticizes Israel, for example. Um, But she's never said like, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. No. And you know, what's so interesting about this with Kanye, right? I am not personally worried that Kanye is going to, you know, bomb a synagogue or something like that. I don't love these comments coming from him. I think they're anti-Semitic, but you know, I'm, I'm more concerned that there is a huge political movement that's holding him up as this figure, right, that is now bound to uh, defend these remarks, right, or even some of the more opportunistic people, um, you know, some overt white supremacists who see Kanye saying this as a, a way of excusing their saying more extreme things. They're furthering these tropes and putting them, you know, in greater public eye. So it is really weird to see how Republicans will maneuver themselves around these comments, especially now that, yeah, they've made him into this conservative celebrity. And I think what was really interesting in sort of the uh, the first couple days of this rolling anti-Semitism fest that he's doing, they were really trying to make it sound like Kanye was being censored for being conservative, right? They said, um, I, I, I love the egocentrism in here. Kanye has been censored a few days after going on Tucker Carlson. No, that's not the issue. It was the issue is the uh, anti-Semitic tweets. So it's really funny to see how far they're willing to stick with this guy and where they think, uh, you know what, optics on this, not so hot. Maybe we should backpedal a little bit. You know, you mentioned these kind of overt white supremacists. You know, I think of someone like, like basically the, the thing to understand is that these guys, they're obsessed with this idea of of what they call naming the Jew. And so, you know, you have all this stuff, um, I would say on the far right, that's a lot of mentions of cabals and sort of groups that are bound to or bent on destroying the world economy and enslaving everyone. And then ultimately a lot of that stuff is, is, is sort of circling around just saying we're talking about Jewish people is what they want to say. And so Kanye saying that has really delighted them. Baked Alaska, former BuzzFeed employee, you know, G- January 6th, the uh, riot, rioter. The BuzzFeed to J6 pipeline. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I mean, I mean, you know, at least one instance of it. He's on Telegram and he's, you know, he's tweeting this DEFCON 3 post and he's saying this is real. Like we have been vindicated by this because I think this really does, you know, do a ton to to mainstream this anti-Semitism um, for more people to be like, yeah, you know, like, for example, one character who 
whose interactions with Kanye have always fascinated me, and I would say somewhat one-sided interactions, is Ali Alexander, who folks may remember as a guy who organized one of the protests around the Capitol, seemingly drew a lot of people to the Capitol and ultimately became the riot. Now, he has had kind of an interesting, I would say, Remora-like relationship to Kanye West, uh, in that he has always kind of tried to, I think, associate himself as like a bigger deal, is sort of like somehow tied to Kanye in a way that I don't think is reflected publicly. I think a few years ago, um, Kanye West started wearing a lot of like orange clothes, and Ali said, yeah, this is the year of orange for me and Kanye. <laughs> and it was sort of like if, if I was just like, <laughs> like, yeah, me and, uh, me and Rick Owens, we're all wearing black this year. We figured it out, you know? <laughs> um, it's like, I don't know how much Kanye was associated with that. So he's wearing these just like really ugly, like just giant orange sweaters that like stop the steel rallies and stuff. Anyways, so I mean, yeah, so he's been tweeting like, yes, you know, there are or posting on Telegram. He's saying, yes, there are Kanye is right that there are some some bad Jews who have concentrated power. But I suppose there's also some good Jews. I mean, this is just a really crazy way to talk. And I think, you know, whether Kanye is on some kind of mental bender here or what have you, it, it is really mainstreaming the, this language on the right, this idea that, um, you know, I think I, I think it's giving people this idea of freedom to to just be like, yeah, no, we can talk about like some kind of Jews. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, he's he's becoming kind of their glorified, you know, conservatives have always wanted some proximity to rap music. And in the past, they've had to do like, you know, some white rapper with a forehead tattoo who's like uh, rapping about the Illuminati, really, really bottom tier stuff. But now maybe maybe they can get into I wouldn't call Kanye the A-Leagues anymore, but, you know, kind of a little bit more uh, radio hit stuff. So this is uh, this is really fortuitous for that. Yeah, I guess for me, my, my main concern about this is what this means, what Kanye's role as the conservative rapper means for the, the previous conservative rappers, such as uh, Fever Dream's favorite, Forgiato Blow. <laughs> like, is he going to be pushed out now? What does this mean? This is obviously time for a collaboration. We get uh, Forgiato <laughs> on the track. I like the Good stuff. So, Will, you've got some wild new reporting from inside the Proud Boys. It seems like not all is totally well there. It seems like there might be some family feuds. Yes, I think not not everyone has been venerating the housewife and glorifying the entrepreneur as, <laughs> as, as the Proud Boys go. Yeah, so so look, I mean, if the Kanye news got you down, I got some good news. The Proud Boys had a very crummy uh, party in Las Vegas last month. So the Proud Boys, we know them. They're a men's club. They wear yellow and black. A bunch of them participated in the January 6th uh, riot. They have a rule that they can't masturbate too much. But the Proud Boys have been faced since January 6th with a what one member calls a massive civil war. Uh, so I dove into this in an article for the Daily Beast over the weekend. Basically, after January 6th, people may remember, the Proud Boys were split with the revelation that their chairman and sort of their figurehead, Enrique Tarrio, had a prolific history as a federal informant. Now, Enrique has not been tied to being a federal informant in the Proud Boys, but previously he was basically described as like a really successful federal informant in various <laughs> investigations. And wait, 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 can we can we backtrack? Because I think the reason why they kind of got him on the hook as a federal informant be was because he was facing some charges having to do with, I think, uh, stealing and reselling medical supplies, you know, just a really uh, storied trajectory there. So he's run into the feds from a couple directions here. 
Yeah, this is not exactly a Scarface situation. Um, this is like the, the guys who post the, the flyers that are like, do you have extra diabetes test strips? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite like that. But, but I mean, th- that's the kind of like schemes he was up to at the time. So, you know, the Proud Boys, as many far-right groups are, are always consumed with paranoia about federal informants. And the revelation that uh, their leader was a federal informant uh, did not go well. People dubbed him Federique, and various chapters started splitting off. Now, these chapters which I should add, also seemed to attract people who were already on the outs with the National Proud Boys leadership, some of whom had been disavowed, which is a big term in Proud Boys land, which you know means you have been excommunicated from the black and gold. They started this thing called The Standard, and the idea was we're going to be this decentralized thing. It's more like a concept being a Proud Boy, and we have a couple rules. Uh, no, no pedophiles, which is always a good rule. I support that. And I, I believe no snitches. So this starts a feud with the chapters that still adhere to Terrio's leadership, which are called National. And so this feud kind of goes back and forth for a while, and it really blows up on Telegram because, you know, if you're a proud boy, I guess you can meet up with the boys every so often um, in your local community. You read Pat Buchanan's Death of the West. Uh, not, not a joke. <laughs> you know, you hang out every so often. You get to go fight Antifa. It seems like a lot of this, the action these days really goes down on Telegram, where people can just get into these like inane disputes about the the meaning of being a proud boy and and who's uh, doing what they call brother hunting when you're. You know, this is this is practically leftist. Like I haven't seen this much like fighting over bylaws since the DSA meeting. You know? I think they've actually had more to do with Antifa than they think. That I mean, it, that, that's a great point, Kelly. I mean, it really is like the amount of like, well, we're going to sign on to this this compact between like our <laughs> our splinter chapters and whatever. And so this all like the basically the, this boils down to whether you know whether it's a fight between the the sort of the decentralization of the Proud Boys or who will adhere to what the Proud Boys call their Sharia Council. Um, <laughs> I mean, just oh, <laughs> just like what a dear. what a toxic stew of like conservative media has sort of like uh, festered in these guys' brains. This feud goes back and forth for a while and they, you know, there's one kind of prominent proud boy who called himself the standard killer because you know he just, oh, I hate these, these, these autonomous proud boys factions. So, but the, here's the thing with the proud boys, a lot of it, you know, some of it, yeah, is, is about overthrowing the government. Yeah, but it's also about partying. And so the thing is, if you're at odds with other Proud Boys, you're still going to see them at the parties. And so this year, as always, the Proud Boys headed to Las Vegas for a meeting called West Fest. And Gavin McGinnis, the Proud Boys founder who, you know, basically claimed to have split from the group uh, as soon as the heat got on back in 2018, <laughs> as soon as like someone took his ideas seriously and got arrested, you know, he went and but he said he had a pretty crummy West Fest because all of the Proud Boys were fighting each other. Um, and in fact, kind of like, I didn't really get into this in my article, but it seems like really a lot of the Proud Boys hate his guts now. He faked his own arrest to go on vacation a couple months back. And so this is sort of seen as stolen valor as Proud Boys face serious time. Like one guy came up to him and was like, this is my city. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, if you're Gavin McGinnis, you know, you, you want to be lauded at these things. You want to be treated as sort of the Ur Proud Boy. Well, to be fair, Gavin McGinnis's uh, city is, you know, the Tony suburb of Merriman, I think, in, in upstate New York. So, you know, it, it's, that's fair. I don't think he's a Vegas guy anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a guy who maybe, you know, he, he's got some amount of money from from founding Vice and, and maybe he's not quite up with the, you know, the, the, the edgy of the Proud Boys who are like, uh, you know, facing uh, Rico indictments or whatever. Gavin decides, you know, he's like, this West Fest stunk. I, I, I should add the Golden Nugget Casino put out a sign saying no gang colors in an attempt to ward off the Proud Boys. Um, you know, it's like the, the, the boys can't hit the roulette table. Give me a break. The other thing I, I should say is that basically all the Proud Boys leadership 
is currently in jail uh, and facing charges over the January 6th riot. Terrio has charges. Joe Biggs, who's a, another prominent one. Uh, Ethan Nordian, as well as a guy named Noble Beard. And this is like, the, you know, I think that offers some insight uh, into the Proud Boys mindset in that it's like, we're kind of like uh, epic. What, what Do we have like epic, epic bacon guy in there as well? Yeah, I mean, all, all these guys that you're naming have, you know, fake names like Ethan Nordian goes as Rufio Panman, Noble Beard. Yeah, he's, he's a guy who I guess hasn't shaved in long enough. And uh, he just, I think you're getting into it, pleaded guilty to a seditious conspiracy last week. Yeah? Yeah. So Noble Beard has flipped on the boys. And so this is th- this offers like a great challenge to the Proud Boys. The thing I want to flag about Rufio Panman is that that name is taken from the movie Hook. So like this is, you know, which is, of course, a children's <laughs> movie. Um, Wait, there's so many there's so many like very like theater tie ins, right? The Proud Boys are named after a, uh, a song in the Aladdin musical adaptation. Wow. A hook tie in. I believe a song that didn't even make it into the musical itself. So to give you an idea of like how deep the boys are on their musical theater i mean this is like the cut for time <laughs> stuff that they're talking about so gavin comes out and he says he gets on his show where he did his fake arrest a few weeks ago and he comes out and he says look i hate to do this but i'm gonna have to exile some guys this this civil war has gone on long enough now i really like this guy this guy named uh bj but i but i really like this guy but you know it's just the drama's gone on too far this guy and his buddy are exiled and if they any any chapter that harbors them, you know, you're exiled too. We, we gotta we gotta quash this. Now I look up this BJ guy, this guy named Brian James. Oh this no, guy, this guy. This guy's like a hardcore racist skinhead. And that that the Proud Boys number one have been harboring this guy. And that then Gavin McGinnis is like, oh my god, I, I think this guy's great. But you know, <laughs> sorry, you gotta go. I mean, this is the guy. You don't even let this guy get in the door. So Brian James, for people who don't know, this is a guy who has like his own profile on the Southern Poverty Law Center. Like he is. Uh, decades long just outright skinhead white supremacist he was uh he's a co-founder of the vinlanders social club he's been uh, involved in neo-nazi agitating so i mean this is you know oh shoot brian you gotta step out you're making the group look bad i mean this is someone who one google search should uh weed him out of any organization so yeah i mean th- this is a guy I-, I think this sort of shows the the post january 6 era of the proud boys that this this is the kind of guy who's like leading the charge um up until his banishment although that said after writing my article i got some emails from people saying like you know the standard will never die like we are we're like uh <laughs> like gavin doesn't control our club whatever you know and i would buy it um you, you know i think i think we're seeing this kind of future this fracturing um you know especially with the federal heat being on absolutely you know what's so interesting about this is this sort of indicates that gavin mcginnis's involvement is mm, a bit more significant than he lets on you know he distanced himself from the proud boy around when they started catching charges. After, if you remember, in 2018, there was a brawl uh, in Manhattan. Some Proud Boys caught charges for attacking leftists outside a Republican social club. And that was around the time that Gavin McGinnis decided he was going to step away. Things got a little too spicy for him. He's got too much money to lose. This really suggests to me that he's kind of calling the shots, right? He's showing up to Westfest. He's exiling people. He's effectively issuing, you know, group-wide orders on his podcast. So, you know, this is this is interesting for a guy who really can't stand to catch a lot of heat right now. You know, he's a Canadian citizen. Proud Boys have been named a terrorist organization in Canada. I would guess that he's kind of playing with fire right now and suggesting that he's so close to the group. Yeah, and, and a terrorist group in his native Canada. It's interesting, and I think, you know, 
why who cares right what does it matter that the proud boys are fighting so much well i think the relevance is obviously they're a a republican paramilitary at this point and also i think as we head towards 2024 and in particular i think in the summer of next year and in 2024 that's sort of riot season um and 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 i think that is when we can see a lot of we're going to see the proud boys return although maybe i'm wrong because the proud boys have they didn't go away i mean we're seeing a lot of proud boys threatening um like drag queen story hour type stuff so the they're still out there and and, and and i think this idea of whether they're sort of spinning out into these sort of autonomous chapters or whether um people like federique will be able to regain control i think um is a very relevant one absolutely and i think a couple of them have sort of outgrown the need for the Proud Boys, you know, as they become more accepted in the Republican mainstream. You're seeing them get uh, local Republican seats in some states. You're seeing them get uh, actual elected official roles in Florida. So it maybe doesn't even matter so much that they're a cohesive group if, you know, they've got actual positions with a more powerful organization like the GOP. As long as they adhere to the core Proud Boys tenets. And it's about self-love and being able to name five cereals while being punched in. I'm, I'm sure they'll be fine. Okay, Will, who do we have as our guest this week? All right, this week we've got Jared Holt. He's a longtime friend of the podcast. Um, he's also a senior researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue covering U.S. hate and extremism. Uh, Jared has a new report out that he co-authored on the very ugly sort of election trends we can expect in 2022 and 2024. Um, so I wanted to have him on. And he, he also has a podcast called Posting Through It, uh, where he gets into a lot of the same kind of stuff we do here on Fever Dreams. So I wanted to pick his brain. I think it should be interesting. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we've got Jared Holt. He's a senior research manager on hate and extremism at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He's also a longtime you know, soldier in the trenches of just insane internet stuff. He's got a podcast and a newsletter called Posting Through It. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We got the midterms coming up. I think we're less than a month out at this point. Over at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, y'all have an article on some of the just awful trends we've got coming in the midterms. Poll worker harassment. Um, you know, we've talked in the past about the Gateway Pundit's idea to have war room RVs parked in every parking lot outside a, a uh, Secretary of State's office. What are y'all seeing out there? We're seeing a lot of things, whether it is violent and heated rhetoric towards election officials, calls for vigilante action like those <laughs> war room RVs. We'll see how much that pans out on the RV. V front, small scale organizing, crowdsourcing information, any sort of irregularity in counting processes being sourced as fraud and, you know, other things along that general line. Uh, in our article that we have on ISD's website, we drew from a lot of the monitoring we did during primary elections. From there, some very clear trends started to emerge out of it, and we definitely continue 
to see those trends exist to these days. We think they'll escalate before elections, during elections, and God knows after elections as well, too. So, Jared, a lot of poll workers are, listen, they're like not well paid or paid at all. They're often in it for the love of civic duty. What can these people expect when they go to work on Election Day? I wish I could say it would be a good time, but I don't know that it will be right. I, I don't anticipate them having very good days in every place. Poll workers have continued to be targets for threats, harassment. They've been incorporated into the center of conspiracy theories that have circulated online, which then produce more threats and more harassment. And, you know, these are people who are volunteering or, as you said, you know, not exceptionally well paid doing this act of public service because it is an act of public service. You know, their payback for this is not a bunch of thank yous and you know, handshakes and whatnot. It is, you know, just being incorporated into this gobbledygook of conspiracy theories that have been snowballing since the beginning of 2020. So, Jared, you know, you're in the trenches here. You're looking at all these weird schemes online, targeting election workers, sowing doubt about how the elections are going to be run. Is there like one standout batshit scheme that you think people are going to have to keep an eye on? One that I've been really fascinated by, and I, I want to be clear that this is not like the dominant one. If there's a dominant one, I definitely think it is just watching drop boxes or conducting civilian surveillance of polling locations on election day or, you know, centers where they're counting votes. I think that is probably going to be the most prevalent. But one that I've been really fascinated by is the idea of stealing tabulator tape. So this is like part of a piece of equipment that goes into tabulation machines, aka like vote counting machines. So I'm very curious to see if anybody is going to pull like a Mission Impossible on Election Day and try to crack one of these machines open, you know, steal the real tape, replace it with like a roll of Charmin or something <laughs> and like scuttle out the back door. Wait, so this is, these are people on the right. These are election conspiracy theorists talking about breaking into a voting machine and somehow they're not the villains. I can tell you what they say. I can't tell you it makes any damn sense, <laughs> but election machinery has been at, you know, the center of so many conspiracy theories, whether it was everything from 2020 around Dominion voting to, you know, the latest iteration after the arrest of Eugene Yu, who was the CEO of Connect, uh, which produced, you know, software, particularly one called Poll Chief, which keeps uh, poll worker data uh, organized. You know, any sort of election infrastructure equipment is going to be a big focus going into the fall. You know, related to that, Jared, are you seeing a resurgence of the, the Sharpie mania? This idea that if a poll worker gives you the wrong pen or marker to mark your ballot with, you know, your your ballot becomes property of Joe Biden. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in 2020, it was all about Sharpies in Arizona. During the primaries of 2022, it was about like Pentel felt pens. So if, you know, the tip of your pen bends when you, you know, if it is soft and squishy, avoid it entirely. In fact, you know, some organizations like True the Vote or uh, apps like Votify Now that are being pushed around are encouraging people to bring their own pens to polling locations, particularly blue ballpoint ones, because 
as the theory goes, if you, you know, bubble it in with a black pen that is not readable, then the machine will just fill in a vote for you. But if it's a blue pen, you know, that would be clearly different from whatever black ink a machine is using uh, and then could be used to detect fraud later on. A lot of these conspiracy theories, like, Makes sense if you assume a bad premise, which I think is sort of the misconception that goes around a bit, which is that these are just like completely nutty. And, and to be clear, they are, but it is logical to a sense, but logical starting from like the most bunk premise that is like thinly sourced if sourced at all. Wait, Jared, you just mentioned an app that I've uh, not been cursed with ever hearing about. Did you say Votify Now? What's that? So there's a lot of these that have rolled up on the scene. Something that 2022 primaries also saw was the introduction of these different tech tools. Uh, and they all kind of share the common theme of being hubs to dump information into databases that then national figures, whether it is the True the Votes or Dinesh D'Souza's of the world, can pick up and then use to amplify claims of fraud. Uh, one of those is called Votify Now. From what we can tell, it hasn't been downloaded more than a few thousand times. I will say I'm one of those downloads. <laughs> I like to keep up with the, with the Votify community. Yeah, real Votify heads there. The avatars <laughs> don't have legs yet, but it's... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, God. I was going to say that's a really meta reference, but that's just worse. But so... Votify Now is one of these apps, and what it does is it offers users a portal that they can submit photos, files, you know, whatever it may be, and a claim that something improper is happening during an election. And then what the owners of that app have done is taken those claims and, you know, take a picture of the claim on their computer screen in the back end and say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, would you look at that? Someone in Michigan is having issues at this polling location. And most of the time, they don't get a ton of play on these. But we have seen, you know, the Wendy Rogers of the world or like, you know, really prominent election deniers on a couple instances taking those unsourced claims that anybody can make. And there's no mechanism for verification built into anything. And then sort of prop those up on election day to sort of seed the base to later then claim that something improper had happened if they don't like the results of the election. Votify is sort of a fascinating outlet or outlet, I don't know, maybe outfit, I think, because it sort of reminds me of the uh, like the vaccine harm databases where people would say like, uh, yeah, blood poured out of my eyes after I got the vaccine. And then people say, oh, wow, that's crazy. As you mentioned, Jared, it's not a screenshot, but they take like a cell phone picture of a computer screen. So, you know, some of the the incidents here, the one in Minnesota, it, all, all, all it says is, won't allow me to get on here. Says not secure. FBI screwing with it? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And this is, I, I'm not like going deep in the Votify database. This is stuff that Votify has considered like legitimate enough to raise the question about. Another one, I am at my designated location and cannot find a single person. No one in sight. I've double checked. This is right location. So, okay. You know, I mean. <laughs> and, and then they throw hashtags on it that are like, save america destroy fraud and like which kind of i feel like shows the hand there you know can you message people on this can i make friends if i download it trying to become a votify power user oh i've encountered so much <laughs> way more fraud than the rest of y'all influencer <laughs> finally it didn't work for me on tiktok but <laughs> yeah i mean in the right hands this could take down that peter Thiel like conservative dating app mm-hmm 
<laughs> that Votify has to pivot. You know, yeah, uh, the right stuff has uh, has been slow to pick up the voter fraud uh, dating demo. Votify together. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? I mean, this sort of segues into another thing, because I was going to say, you know, you could have maybe a speed dating outside a ballot drop box, right? Like, you know, a bunch of singles, you know, and, and they're just camped out all night. Jared, what is the story with these tailgates where people watch the ballot drop boxes? Yeah, we've seen a couple instances of them happening, a lot more discussion of them you know, people wanting them to happen. And the idea is to, you know, do civilian surveillance of ballot drop boxes, but in a fun way, in a cute way, like in in a way that resembles a tailgate outside the high school homecoming football game, right? You know, people whipping out some lawn chairs, getting their cell phones out and, you know, filming people or watching people as they are going to and from ballot drop boxes. and. If, you know, the real heads going all the way back to 2020 will remember that footage or photos of people at ballot drop boxes were used to substantiate all kinds of claims of fraud or wrongdoing during the 2020 election. And, you know, that sort of component has only been intensified since Dinesh D'Souza released the 2000 Mules. I don't want to call it a documentary film. We will call it a film. It certainly uh, has a beginning and ending and some middle parts in it. It's the idea that, you know, they're all going to get together. They're going to camp out near these ballot boxes. And, you know, maybe if they're really lucky and their cameras are pointed in the right direction at the right moment, they'll, you know, catch some apparitions. And then they can take it to a ghost hunter who will (laughs) identify it as one of the mules. And they finally got it on tape, you know? Jared, is, is that legal? It's just from a sort of, you know, I think back to the days where there were like two Black Panthers uh, standing outside of a polling place in, I believe, Philadelphia. And this became a big like voter intimidation scandal uh, on Fox News. But this idea of that people are going to camp out outside of, you know, voting drop boxes um, and videotape people, particularly in this age where anyone who is at all like if, if, if they think you're acting shady and then suddenly you, you can be on Fox News or or on OAN and just have your life ruined, um, you know, within a matter of hours. It just strikes me as like, you know, a good amount of voter intimidation there. Right. One of the beautiful things about living in the United States is we have 50 states and all the laws are just slightly different in each one. (laughs) Right. So when it comes to voting and voter intimidation, different states have slightly different rules. But most of them, what they do have in common is a distance requirement. So You know, in Arizona, it is legal to walk around with an AR-15 strapped across your body. That is how the state interprets its gun laws. We see people do it all the time at rallies and that sort of thing. But if it's election day and you're strapped up and you get a little too close to a polling location, then legal questions about voter intimidation start to come into play. And when it comes to this Dropbox monitoring, you know, I can definitely imagine a situation where people get too close to these ballot drop boxes or, you know, imagine a situation where one of these drop box tailgates is happening and they think, aha, we've spotted a mule. And then it leads to confrontations or, you know, really uncomfortable situations. And, you know, whether or not it fits the legal definition of voter intimidation is going to vary depending where you are. But I do think that, you know, regardless of the legal definition, it still does open up pretty, you know, decent risk 
that some voters may be intimidated if they don't want to be filmed, if they are worried about being harassed simply for casting a ballot. Some people might just decide it's not worth it. And I think ultimately that's a a negative thing. You know, if we're going to defend and protect this idea of democracy, this big experiment we have going in the country, you know, we need participation. If people are acting in ways that are discouraging each other from participating in that experiment, you know, then the exercise becomes, you know, more strenuous, I think. So, Jared, have you seen any effort to, like, push back on this? Like, are there any poll workers that you've seen saying, okay, like, here's how to protect yourself? I know as journalists, we often, you know, talk about how to prevent yourself from being doxxed or whatever. Like, is there any prep work on the part of people who are just trying to do their jobs here? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, there's a lot of organizations, ours included, that are trying to take this information and funnel it into places where people who have influence over these processes or, you know, are working in maybe like a nonpartisan activist role, you know, trying to do public education and that sort of thing, can take that information and turn it into resources that are hopefully helpful to people should they face a contentious situation like that. Public education campaigns like that are always tricky. And then there's also the balance that, you know, imagine you are like a elections office in... I don't know, Wisconsin, for example, you want to be very careful about like not discouraging people questioning the results of the election too much, right? It is like a First Amendment issue. If you want to say, I don't think the elections are all good, certainly you're right to. But I think the challenge here is making sure that the laws and legalities and also just the values that we attribute to voting are clearly articulated over and over and over again so that people know where the limits are. And hopefully those limits are set at appropriate levels and those safeguards are set at appropriate levels that should everybody kind of follow the rules, maybe things look a little nutty, things get a little crazy, but the process itself isn't compromised too much or people don't feel too intimidated when it comes time to vote or participate in democracy in some way. But again, like I said, We live in the United States and as a lovely country, we have 50 different, you know, sets of guidelines and procedures and processes for the voting process. So how that translates state to state to state is going to look a little different everywhere you go. So, Jared, you know, like Kelly and I, you have a a sort of perverse fascination with what's going on on the on the right wing Internet. And you get into it in your podcast and newsletter posting through it. What? are some other interesting things you're seeing out there, you know, maybe ominous, but uh, maybe fascinating at the same time. You know, I think back to the days, you know, when, when QAnon was bubbling up and the Proud Boys were getting into it and all this stuff. You know, what is new out there? Something that has really caught my fascination. I've actually, I listened to the episode you guys did about uh, the Breitbart, My Son, Hunter movie thing. That was like really fascinating. I'm getting really fascinated with these You know, over the past few years, I've heard people on the right complain over and over and over again that they don't have cultural products, right? You know, Hollywood is corrupt. The news is corrupt. The, you know, everything is corrupt, right? If it doesn't align with a certain worldview, according to these people. But they haven't had a whole lot of offerings of their own. A couple years ago, we saw places like the Daily Wire start taking a lot of money, announcing production houses and that sort of thing. And Now the time has come that some of these are kind of getting released out into the wild. Salem Media has like a new 
online streaming platform. They hosted a couple movies called like Uncle Tom or something. They're absolutely insane. Oh, well, yes. Uncle Tom 2 was memorably where Elijah Schaefer of The Blaze, you know, allegedly, uh, you know, assaulted one of his colleagues and got fired from. So the the premiere there. So yes, Uncle Tom 2. You've got the My Son Hunter movie, you know, all the, you know, some of the conservative podcasts are getting these really high production values now. So I've been really fascinated by this, the manifestation of these attempts to create these alternative cultural products, most of which, you know, I am no professional movie critic or anything, but they're pretty bad. <laughs> I think, you know, just as a run of the mill viewer, the Hunter Biden movie was like borderline unwatchable. I don't know. Yeah, it, it does seem like we're really getting a lot of them all of a sudden, you know, and I think this is, you know, I mean, the, the Daily Wire films, obviously, they had the the one about kind of the, a, a young woman uh, foils a school shooting. They obviously, the, the documentary wise, they had Matt Walsh on what is a woman. And often these feel sort of like an excuse for Ben Shapiro and the gang to like uh, dress up in suits and, and uh, eat popcorn uh, for their big live premieres. Uh, but these are, uh, they're blowing up. Jared, all I was going to say is that, um, you know, speaking of being a veteran of the posting wars, I know you've been through several Twitter election cycles covering the far right. And uh, you know, th things have taken a bit of a turn with Trump off Twitter, and now we're looking at uh, a possible Elon Musk takeover. And I know you've been watching with interest what Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter might mean for uh, the discourse. So I was wondering if you had any predictions, you know, are these people really going to stick to Gab and Truth Social or do you think they're coming back? I will believe that Elon Musk has purchased Twitter whenever the agreement is signed. Like I, it, <laughs> it's gone back and forth so much. The guy, in my opinion, is like, he's rich, but he's not brilliant. And I'm kind of exhausted by the whole thing, honestly. That being said, if it does go through the way that it seems like, how much hedging language can I fit in here? Seems like it may possibly go through. And that it goes the way that people think it may go, which is that Elon Musk kind of, you know, pulls the gate up and lets people back on that have been banned, including several, you know, far right figures or election denialists, insurrectionists, that sort of thing. It's hard for me to imagine that places like Gab or Truth Social will maintain the kind of capital they have over that sort of audience that they do today. The whole reason Truth Social exists is because Trump needed a place to post. But if he can go back onto Twitter, get his account back, where he has, you know, more than 10 times as many followers and access to, you know, every journalist and politician and political force, you know, seemingly out there, why would he stick to Truth Social? I mean, I imagine things will start getting cross-posted the same way they do on Parler, where, like, the Candace Owens of the world posts something on, you know, Twitter, but then it gets, like, copied and pasted by an assistant or maybe themselves, I don't know, onto Parler and it's you know, for the tumbleweeds to roll past. But, you know, if, if Twitter becomes this free-for-all that Elon Musk has talked about envisioning, it's hard for me to imagine what the selling point of these alternative platforms will really be. I think places like Rumble may still exist because it's a unique video component, but so many of them have been built around the model of Twitter or Facebook. So it you know, it's always hard to predict the future. If I had a working crystal ball, I'm sure I would, you know, be living out in the Hampton somewhere in some big mansion, you know, counting my cash. But 
uh, and picking lottery numbers. But if things go the way it seems like they might go, I can definitely envision a future where the market share and the cultural capital that these alternative platforms have been able to, you know, extrapolate for themselves diminishes greatly. All right. You heard it here, folks. The time is limited for Jason Miller's getter. (laughs) You know, count up your getter points while you can. Okay, well, Jared Holt, he's a senior research manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He's got a podcast. He's got a newsletter called Posting Through It. Jared, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now we come to the segment called Fresh Hell. But I have to say... This week, I think we might have a slice of fresh heaven because this story is just gravy all the way through. I think it is fun, fun, fun. Kelly, what do we have this week? Well, Will, have you ever gone to your bank and said, wow, this is too woke? Have you ever like <laughs> seen a headline and you're like, man, I wish these banks were more predatory in home lending to black people. Oops, that's Wells Fargo. That already exists. But no, don't worry. We have finally an unwoke bank with uh, backing from the likes of Peter Thiel and other rich investors. We are talking about... <laughs> It's called Glorify, and um, it's spelled with a with a you know funky mix of capital letters, um, you know F I in the end, like finance. There's great new reporting from the Wall Street Journal showing how Glorify was pegged to be the big new uh, alternative banking system for people who think Wall Street is just a little too politically correct. Unfortunately, this new venture doesn't seem to be getting off the ground. And I want to read a little bit from this Wall Street Journal article because it's a banger. It's a screenshot every paragraph article. Within months, the investor's money was nearly gone and Glorify was on the verge of bankruptcy. It missed launch dates, blaming faulty technology and failure by vendors and laid off dozens of employees. It stumbled with products, for instance, a plan to make a credit card out of the same material used for shell casings when the company realized the material could interfere with security chips and potentially be too thick for payment terminals, according to people familiar with the matter. So this is great. You know, credit card won't work, but, but you could put it in a gun. I mean, this is... (laughs) It's such a funny idea to be like, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? It's like, well, maybe we'll have a gun card. And then it's like, (laughs) oh, wait. (laughs) I guess that's why they don't make credit cards out of guns um, or bullets. I mean, yeah. So so the basis here is we we got a guy named Tony Neugebauer. And he cooks up this scheme with Mike Pence's former chief of staff, Nick Ayers, who's sort of a um, definitely like a character around the Republican Party. I feel like this is not the first story we've read about Nick Ayers kind of uh, mucking up something. So these guys say, look. I'm offering some insight into into their thinking here. I don't know if this is what they were thinking. But there is there's sort of a, a move on the right to create the parallel economy, right? And so whether it be social media websites like uh, Getter or Truth Social um, after someone gets kicked off of there or, you know, they always have these big stories like um, when PayPal kicks off a group called Gays Against Groomers and they say, oh my gosh, everybody, we got to move our money to to new payment processors so that, uh, for example, Dan Bongino has a, a, has a payment processor called Parallel Economy. Um, and so these guys seem to have read the sort of seen the same the the way the wind was blowing and they said well we'll make a republican bank unlike those woke wall street guys and now glorify i think is an awful name for this it's spelled like g-l-o-r-i-f-i it sounds like a like a church maybe but these guys you know 
I have to say, I think this should have been a relatively simple scheme to pull off. I think you don't even necessarily need to make your own bank. I think you can kind of just like make a front here that's offer operating like off like operating off the the basis of another bank. Maybe you kick them some money here. Yet it has been a complete disaster. Absolutely. You're right that this should be just a layup, right? Because so many Republican schemes are, you know, they're fronts for saying, how do we get people to give us all their money? Well, this is, is just this cuts is a freedom up the middle, phone so just, scheme. Just give us. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you bring up the freedom phone because this has a lot of the same uh, hype men or hype women. Um, rather than coming up with a working product, uh, Glorify started looking for some uh, spokespersons and Candace Owens, who is a noted freedom phone fan, um, she was one of the first people hyping Glorify. Now, unfortunately, that product doesn't seem to be uh, coming to the market anytime soon. And that's because of some really, I think, unique dysfunction in this company. A lot of the company is based out of the uh, 16,000 square foot Dallas home of its CEO. And a lot of people not only work there, but they live there too. Now, if you're thinking, mm -hmm, this sounds kind of like maybe a dorm room, a cult, it doesn't actually sound much better on paper because there are allegations that the CEO has, a, you know, likes to hit the bottle, likes to hit the bottle at 5 p.m. And uh, employees are... It, it, it is interesting. That this story is riddled with examples of problem drinking. Uh, and yet, our, the CEO is very much like, look, I don't drink till 5 p.m. So <laughs> it's good to have rules. <laughs> now, now after 5 p.m., like all bets are off. So the, the the deal with this is yes. So everyone is working out of this guy's home in Dallas. His yes, Dallas home modeled after the White House, right? Yes, and, and I maybe about that. maybe specifically given these stories, maybe the Nixon White House. But so the, the this so people are working in this guy's house. They're staying in the house um, when they're from out of town. And there are these complaints that the CEO is just getting blasted all the time. Now, his denial of, you know, employees were warned to leave by five because by six he'd be drunk, according to this story. His story is like, his response says, well, the attacks on what I do in my home after 5 p.m. are beneath the Wall Street Journal. But it's like, but the home is also your office. Well, listen, this is the work from home lifestyle, work from my home specifically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're not in your own home. You're coming to my home and watching me drink vodka Red Bulls, which I think is is described here. I mean, but but that's not. I mean, that's not the only. The, the details in this story are just insane. So one of these vendors sues uh, the company, and I, and I have to imagine the Wall Street Journal's eyes just lit up whenever you get a, a lawsuit and you're reading these details. It's like what what what. So. In this case, a, a a manager at Glorify is just on this video call, just screaming at the vendors, employees, and at the other Glorify employees. And so you might think, oh, that sounds pretty bad, right? But then it gets worse because <laughs> the manager quits the call or seems to. And then according to the Wall Street Journal here, the senior manager later returned on camera in a state of undress on a bed with a companion. So basically, whoever this person is, they're like, ah, you know, screw, you screwed up our payment process or whatever. Goodbye. And then they come back. And then they just start having sex on the call. I mean, you is this in the is this in the in the the house where they all work? Like again, this is like dorm room shit, right? Like there's so many I don't know what kind of dorm rooms you were in, Kelly. Here. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so then, find, you you have another guy, the, the Toby, the the allegedly hard drinking CEO. You know, he calls in the w one of their employees and he says, "Meet me at P at PF Chang's." You know, and we have to imagine. 
the stuff that goes down in like suburban Dallas, suburban Austin. I mean, think about the the mindscapes we've we visited here. <laughs> you know, I, I I just wrote a story about a guy getting fired from the Blaze, which is also based in Dallas, Glenn Beck's company, for groping one of his uh, coworkers. That's down, going down in the Dallas suburbs. You know, you think about Alex Jones and all his his mansion out in the Austin suburbs. I mean, th- there's a specific vision here. I'm I'm glad to see my own native Houston is is avoiding the these sort of calumnies. But basically, we've got so. Meet me at P.F. Chang's, you know, uh, you, you, we got to get out of the my suburban White House. So <laughs> this guy arrives and according to his account, Toby was drunk. So Toby's the CEO here. Toby was drunk. He ordered me tequila and I said, no, this is, I should say at 1130 in the morning. And he says, uh, he said I would need it. He called me a habitual liar. He threatened to ruin my life if I left and he would use the government to do so. Now, this was made in a police report. I guess the police were like, this is weird, but not a crime. Um, so no charges continue there. <laughs> not the worst thing that's happened in a P.F. Chang's in the uh, Dallas suburbs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's. I mean, it, it's just the material here is so rich. But I have to say, it seems like Glorify will not be getting off the ground. No, absolutely not. So they they did have a huge amount of investors. I mentioned Peter Thiel. You know, they've got more. They've got tens of millions of investors. Well, they money. have Kelly Loeffler, they do, the former Georgia senator known for her shady <laughs> stock deals. So I mean, what could go wrong? Yeah. You know, for for all her shadiness, she does seem to be pretty savvy. You know, she uh, she was right on the money with all those stock deals while in Congress. And she seems like she missed it here. And, you know, to their credit, it seems like the Peter Thiels of this deal have been like, "Mm, I'm not sure about this product anymore. They have not pumped any more money into it. This story is just so rich with interpersonal strife. One of their investors was also author of the book Woke Inc. He was uh, doing uh, some kind of rival anti-woke investment firm. And Toby, the CEO, accused him of stealing his woke bank idea but he accidentally undercut himself by investing in that rival firm, mistakenly believing it was an anti-woke beer company. So I think the market is just a little oversaturated right now. <laughs> Toby, we got to... <laughs> I think Toby's got to take a step back. I think he's got to return to his, the suburban Dallas Oval Office and think about things. <laughs> this should be a layup, right? I mean, I think the ins- the thinking here is they, they say they're going to go really hard on Fox News ads. Basically, I think you watch Fox News and you see Mike Lindell on constantly and he's like you don't want the woke pillow you don't want the woke sheets or the slippers you got to have the conservative pillow and so you look at this and you think huh you know or you look at um, Black Rifle Coffee Company the conservative coffee well why not a conservative bank it's not a bad idea I think the issue is you just need to run it with like a modicum of professionalism I mean the journal story gets into how all these like finance companies were like yeah we don't really feel comfortable sending customers financial information to a house Uh, You know, I mean, it's just very strange. But look, I mean, there's good news for those of us who want to invest in Glorify. They say they're going to do a SPAC. uh, So this kind of Wall Street vehicle to raise money. Unfortunately for Glorify, I think it's like really lean years right now for SPACs. Donald Trump's SPAC is struggling. And certainly I think if I think it's valued at like a billion dollars, it's just crazy. Maybe the SPAC will work out, um, although I'm a little suspicious about that. I think we may have to return to our SJW banks. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I hope Chase doesn't make me, you know, uh, take a social justice pledge next time I go to cash my check. But uh, if that's what it is, it is. All the Wall Street blue hairs. (laughs) 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 Oh, well. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from the Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.